0: Welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast, episode number 152. We're joining you every week to talk IT career progression and bring you the advice we wish we'd been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, John White, at vjourneyman on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Nick Cordy at networknerd underscore. Hey, Nick, how's it going?
1: Hey, John, I'm doing great. Happy post-holiday celebration. We are both pre-sales technical engineers with backgrounds in IT operations. We hope our career discussions will be vendor-neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey.
0: A journey to career enlightenment. So let's take a trip. Awesome, Nick. Hey, so um, today we are starting a new two-part discussion with a new interviewee, Scott Lowe. I can't believe it's two parts. Yeah, I know. Shocking. That surprised me. Shocking that it turned into two parts. Very shocked. Um so I am super bummed that I missed this interview. I've of course read Scott Lowe's blog for years, read a bunch of his books when he was writing about VMware uh, technologies and, you know, that was where my wheelhouse was. You know, he actually I think when we were both at VMware, he briefly worked on one of my accounts when he came back.
1: Oh, that's cool.
0: Yeah, via the Heptio acquisition, very briefly. It was like one meeting maybe. So, you know, again, just super bummed that I missed this recording. Uh, But, you know, listening back to it, you know, it it went really well. I'm not sure what I could have added. (laughs) It was interesting to hear about his background uh, teaching technical material. That was a a pretty interesting way into the field.
1: There was that, and then he talked about that path to principal engineer and what makes the elite individual contributor path the one he prefers to management. Mm -hmm. He's going to share with us a little bit about his blogging philosophy, about what it was like to get paid to write. And then he's going to take it one level higher, and I'm not going to tell you what that is. But here we go with part one of our interview with Scott Lowe. Scott Lowe, thanks so much for joining us on Nerd Journey today.
2: Hey, uh, my pleasure. I really appreciate the opportunity to jump on and
1: uh, chat with you. So it's, uh, it should be fun. Absolutely. I'm excited about it as well. So let's start Scott by telling the, the listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do today, please, sir.
2: Yeah, sure. Of course. My name is uh, Scott Lowe. I'm currently a principal field engineer at uh, Kong. For those of you that have pets, uh, this is not the Kong that makes those really cool toys. This is the Kong that makes, uh, an open source API gateway and an open source service mesh. And, um, is aiming to be, you know, sort of the the I uh, think the tagline for the company is the cloud connectivity company.
1: So, been there since uh, mid-May. Very cool. And can you tell me a little bit about that principal role at Kong? You know, the the principal role is kind of a distinguished one across our industry, and it normally means elite level individual contributor. How have you seen that play out and how does that contribute to what you're doing yeah that's a that's a great question so i have been working my way up
2: through you know the ranks uh i uh, when i left vmware in 2018 to join heptio i joined heptio as a staff uh engineer and uh they were uh, very small um at the time about 50 people when i joined and they had a a roadmap if you will for going beyond staff, going into principal and other higher levels, but this is kind of where they were. And at that point, we started to see staff level and then moving up beyond staff level as being leaders, but not necessarily managers, right? And there's a distinction there, of course, right? When I when I came back into VMware for, through the Heptio acquisition, um, I went up to senior staff and and again, the emphasis was on, you know, okay, how are you how are you helping others in in their roles right how are you mentoring others whether they be junior or associate level engineers or whether it's just you know sort of the, the non-prefixed you know field engineer or, or you know architect or whatever whatever term uh we used uh so and as i have now moved into kong we have three principal uh, engineers so i'm one of three and again, we have this path forward for moving ahead with things like distinguished and, and fellow and that sort of thing, right? But the principal engineer is really outside of a software development context. So in what we do, where we're customer facing this, this context is, you know, how are we influencing the team as a whole? Are we driving best practices? Are we driving efficiency for the company? Are we interacting with others in the industry in a way to establish ourselves as leaders within the industry not just leaders within the company Um, so those kinds of things and you see that sort of continue that trend continue as an individual contributor as you move beyond principal into distinguished or even to fellow Um, and these are often especially distinguished and fellow are considered sort of career level achievements right this is not you know just the average joe that you know hits it and and then you know, moves on, right? This is the culmination of a lot of work in the industry. Uh, you know, I'm I'm excited to pursue those. I have a lot of work ahead of me, but uh, for me, the, the principal role is really about leveling up all the people around me, right? Leveling up the rest of the people on my team, sharing my knowledge, sharing anything and everything that I gain and that I learn, and
1: making sure that they are um, as adequately prepared as they can be to be successful in their endeavors. You mentioned customer facing. So I guess at some companies that can be pre-sales. At some companies it could be post-sales. Maybe it's a mix of both. In your case, uh, which one is it? In in our case, uh, it is mostly post-sales.
2: You could think of it as similar to what you might refer to as a professional services organization in that we are doing services for customers. But unlike many professional services organizations, which tend to over-rotate on the utilization number, we tend to instead focus on impact to the company as a whole, right? So it's not just about utilization. We do track that. Obviously metrics are important for understanding what's happening within the team and across the business as a whole. But it's not like, you know, okay, you didn't, you know, you didn't hit your, you know, 95% utilization. So, you know, shame on you. Right. If we can show that we're making an impact in the business, whether it is involving assisting marketing with Uh, materials, whether it is, you know, supporting a conference event, whether it's supporting community meetups, doing write-ups for uh, reference architectures or best practices that are shared with the rest of the team internally or even externally with customers. All of those are things that have impact.
1: Could some of the duties also be thought of as what we might classify as a team lead or tech lead for the team that you're on? That's a good question. In some organizations,
2: you you might look at you know staff or senior staff or principal level uh members of the team as a tech lead or as a practice lead i don't think it's necessarily a given in terms of you know like it has to be that way it could be that way it's not something that our particular team has chosen to embrace just yet there are pros and cons for every approach in terms of how you structure things like that whether you go with a a technology-based, you know, okay, I'm a tech lead for technology X, whatever that is, right? Or whether you do something like I'm a practice lead for FinServe or, you know, healthcare, right? There's pros and cons to either the, each of those approaches. And it's just a matter of finding which one's the right fit at the right time uh, during the growth stage, right? The company's in a big growth stage right now. And so we have to, the the structure that we choose may have to change.
1: To accommodate that
2: growth as we as we move forward
1: okay yeah that makes sense and if you don't mind we we've, we've interviewed a lot of people who went into manager management some wanted to pursue leadership from an early standpoint some never thought they would like it and they decided to try it for you scott what made that individual contributor path more attractive and has kept you in that role it could be a couple of different ways to describe it i guess uh, if one, one
2: could be could be said it was a fear of failure, right? Um, in that I know that I can do well as an individual contributor. And I know that I, I have done well as an individual contributor. I've been very fortunate to have a great set of opportunities to do some amazing things over the course of my career. And I aim to continue to do amazing things as long as I'm able to do so. So, there, so part of it is that, is I, I know how to be an individual contributor. I know how to be a leader while still being an individual contributor. And again, we go back to that distinction between leader and manager, right? Oh yeah. I've had a lot of discussions with my wife. She is my searcher for the right term here. It's like, she's my, my people interaction, spirit animal. Uh, maybe that's the like right. A way Sherpa. To dis- yeah. Right. She's my Sherpa. There you go. Right. And so I, you know, I, I talked to her a lot about, okay, you know, how would, how would, how would you approach this situation? She's a very people oriented person, um, super outgoing, she can strike up a conversation with anyone uh and they're they're best friends for life i mean it's just it's it's completely natural to her and and that doesn't necessarily happen for me and so i, I rely on her insight a lot and you know I say, oh, how would you approach this situation how would you approach that situation so on and so forth so i think that i probably over the years having gleaned a lot of, of useful information from her and in emulating her and her ability to interact with folks i probably could be a successful people manager, especially with my focus on helping others be successful, because I believe a manager to be someone whose primary role is to clear the way for your team members to do amazing things, right? Just get the roadblocks out of the way, whatever those roadblocks are, just get them out of the way. Make sure they have the resources they need, the time they need, the runway they need to do, whatever it is they have, you know, they, they are gifted to do. So I think I could be a successful manager, but I have shied away from it primarily because I find the greatest job satisfaction and the greatest fulfillment in being very close to the technology. And and I feel like if if I got too far away from the tech, I would lose my passion. I would lose my, my zeal to, to, to get up and and try and figure out what, what is it that makes this thing work and how can I unpack it? And then how can I explain to somebody else so they understand it and they could use that in what they're trying to do as well.
1: I like that. And I wanted to ask those questions at the beginning so we could frame the whole discussion and come full circle at the end. So you mentioned you like to explain things to people and help them understand it. This actually started with early experience as a technical trainer. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Uh, that's that's going way back in the in the career
2: annals there. Yeah. So I, I, I did start, I basically started my career uh, by and large. I, I had a few jobs here and there before I really got into tech, but I was always technically oriented in whatever job I was doing. And uh, computers have been a a passion and a hobby as much as a career for me. Um, If we have time, I'll tell you the story of how I managed to uh, land my first computer. But the the role of being a trainer, a technical trainer, I would say a trainer first. I I got a job with a company who was uh, training pharmaceutical sales reps in the mid nineties and these pharmaceutical sales reps would carry around laptops and they would have these weird pieces of software that they would have to dial up and synchronize all these databases every day. Right. And the databases were things of keeping track of like the samples that they were leaving, the doctors that they saw, you know, this kind of stuff. Right. And, and this is you know before the, you know, the, the sort of the widespread, you know, internet connectivity. I mean, you know, like It was it was a little more challenging, right? You would still dial up and you know the whole thing. And this particular company that I was working for was very, very particular about two things. One, about your skills as an instructor. So anytime we weren't actually speaking or or training in front of customers, we were training to be training, right? And the other thing they were particular about is making sure that the instructors, when we went in to talk to a customer, that we spoke the customer's language. So we would we would do what we called ride-alongs with the customer we would be jotting down all the lingo and all of the jargon that they used, and so then the instructors would come in and they would say these things and the, the sales reps would be like you're using like our language what, you know what do you how did you do that how did you know to to describe it that way because that's exactly the way we describe it and that was a lot of fun and i did that and so i was like this traveling through airports carrying three or four Giant laptops, which were not fun to carry at that time. Oh wow! But, yeah, the big heavy ones. But you know, tra- going on training all these people from all these different pharmaceutical companies. But then it was right around the time that uh, so this was 1995, Windows 95 was coming out, and they wanted to train the instructors on Windows 95 because, of course, this was a big technology change. And so I I volunteered. I stepped up. and said, "Hey, I'll, I'll do it." And so I started digging into a bunch of the tech and you know, getting deeper than you know your usual sort of you know, click here, click here, but how did it work? What was different under the covers from what they already knew, so on, so forth. And I found that the 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 technical side of that, like the teaching, more so than the instructing, right? And again, those subtle differences was really like I super enjoyed that. Uh enjoyed it immensely. And so I left that company to go to work for a company that was a Microsoft Official curriculum, kind of whatever. I don't even remember the terms that they use these days. But I became a Microsoft Certified Trainer, and I began delivering uh, official Microsoft courses, you know, technical courses where people were seeking to get their MCSE or, the, or their uh, Microsoft Certified Professional MCP at the time, uh, right? So things like Windows NT and TCP/IP and blah blah blah. And I did that for a number of years. And the company that I was working for had this unusual relationship with a with a uh, what we call a VAR. Value-added reseller, right? And the instructors would go do consulting work for the VAR when they had time, and the, the consultants at the VAR would come teach classes when they had time. And so it was like this crossover thing, and and it was uh, getting into that that I started doing more of the consulting work that then has since been a large part of my career. But yeah, it's it was it's interesting that you bring up the the technical training part because when I was interviewing with Craig McClucky or the HEPTO position, he asked me, he's like, is there a, is there a theme to your career? And, and I'd never really thought about it. And I, and I said, I guess if I had to pick one, it would be education. It would be teaching people because even if you, you first I was a, a trainer and then a technical trainer, then even as I was a consultant, there's always that process when you wrap up the project or, or when you're getting ready to wrap up the project and you're telling the customer, okay, this is what we've done. This is how you're going to manage what we installed for you, or this is how you're going to interact with it, or this is how you're going to support it. These are the things you need to know, you know, writing up whatever it was, that kind of thing. So even that in that there's education. And then as I began to blog and write books and that sort of thing, again, there's that ed- that aspect of education, of sharing knowledge and making sure other people are equipped to, you know, do amazing things.
1: Now in doing that, did you ever at any point want to be a classroom teacher for high school, college, anything like that? Or did you prefer being in the technical sphere with the technology?
2: Very much in the technical sphere.
1: I, my wife uh, was a teacher
2: uh, before she became a real estate agent. Um, Let's just say that, you know, real estate agent pays a lot better than teacher (laughs) for sure. Um, and the hours, even though that, you know, nights and weekends showing houses to people is still way better than the insane amount of hours she spent as a teacher. Um. So I have great, great, great respect for teachers, but I did never, I never had any desire to go into the classroom other than the technical classroom and talk about, you know, subnet masks, right? And why they only make sense if you think about them in binary.
1: Well, there you go. Did they give you a set curriculum to teach a certain way to do it? Or did you get to paint your own canvas and use your own style throughout? How did that go?
2: Yeah for the for the Microsoft stuff the curriculum was very very well defined you got a giant binder from Microsoft uh, and you had to attend the course by somebody who had already been approved to teach it first uh, and then after you had attended the course then you were authorized to teach the course and so you went through their very prescriptive curriculum and uh, and you know taught it the way they wanted but you would, you would always find that there were certain things that worked better than others. So you might say, okay, we're, we're getting ready to talk about this thing, but we need to go talk about this other thing over here first. So let's go over and talk about this other thing over here first, even though it's later in the curriculum, we're just going to cover this real quick and then we'll come back and then we'll talk about this thing because it'll make more sense to you. Right. And, and so you did do some of that you probably weren't supposed to, but as long as the students were giving you positive reviews and saying that, yeah, you know, that he he or she was an effective instructor and I learned a lot, then
1: it didn't really matter. It seems to me that some of the best instructors have learned how they learn really well and how to learn very well themselves. And then they figure out, okay, how can I best teach it to this other person that's in my classroom? So to speak, I think it is important if you are
2: trying to, to teach someone else something to understand the way that you learn, but also understand that there are different styles and modes of learning, recognize your own flaws. So back in that time, we had this phrase for somebody who liked to go off and explore, and we would call them a Lewis and Clarker, right? That they would just go off and they would explore. And so you'd be up in front of the the room and you'd be talking about some piece of technology or some aspect of the product that you were teaching, and you'd be drawing or you know, going through a slide or whatever the case may be. And you can tell that they're not paying attention because they're looking at the computer in front of them and they're clicking and typing. And and, and you know, like, we're, we're not supposed to be doing anything. We're not doing a lab right now. You should be watching me not going off. And so they'd be off exploring. And, you know, sometimes it helps. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it's okay. Sometimes it's not. Uh, sometimes they'll end up asking you the very right thing you just explained, right? Can you tell me about blah? And like, well, you can have some fun with it if you have a good rapport with the students. Well, if you've been paying attention, you would know that, blah blah right but i bring that up just to say that i recognize in my own style that that's the way that i learn is i have to go off and explore on, and find things and so as i taught others and recognized that tendency in others i was able to tailor my teaching style to address that to say now look pay attention if you're off exploring right now pay attention this concept is going to be important later and it'll unlock other things that you're going to need in your exploration right you know it's sort of like a prerequisite if you will. So there is that but I, I do think it's important and, and, and again you know going back to how much I have learned from my wife as a teacher, she uh, of course learned the the science of education, right in terms of how you how you go about teaching a concept, how you go about understanding a student's way of learning, um, how to address that, how to build in multimodal sort of lessons that address, you know those who see visually and learn, those who hear it and learn, those who do it and learn. Building all of these concepts together into a single thing. I picked up a lot from her as well, and and I think that um, has also informed my style of conveying education. I won't call it teaching because I don't really do it in the classroom anymore. But I my style of conveying education to others. So
1: sure, and I think what listeners would should take away from this is there's an element. Of educational opportunity and everything you're doing with the people you work with no matter who they are there's something you can learn from them and there's something that you can probably teach them if only you take the time you know very much like Scott mentioned to to figure out how are they gonna learn it best how can I present this in a way that will help others understand it may not be the same way that I have to consume information but I think it's important that we teach the other people we work with you know, and that we learn from the other people we work with because it makes everybody on the team better. Yeah,
2: you're absolutely right, um, Nick. And and it, tying this back to our earlier discussion about, you know, being a, a senior level member of a team and and reemphasizing again that that process of sharing the expertise that you have built over the course of your career that has earned you, you know, a staff or a principal level designation is part of the expectation for being in that senior level role is, is that you are in many ways expected to, to share that knowledge. And so making sure that you get in the habit of teaching others on the team and taking, you know, I'm not saying you have to take everything and turn it into a teachable moment, right? But being aware that there are plenty of opportunities in almost every situation, there are plenty of opportunities where you can share knowledge that will empower those on your team. And the more that you empower folks on your team, the more you will be seen and recognized as, a leader on that team, I believe
1: you're sort of like the person who just bought a container of silly putty from Lowe's or home Depot. And you're looking for the holes in the wall and you go, okay, I can fill that hole. I can fill that hole. You spot the gaps and you try and fill them for, uh, for the team and those around you is what it means to me at least.
2: Yeah. The analogy of silly putty and filling the gaps is a great analogy. I I think that's a, a very apt one.
1: Does it seem to you, Scott, that some folks in our industry are maybe afraid to do that because they don't want other people to get ahead of them in the promotion cycle and, or maybe they don't work at a company big enough to have the, the roles that let you progress as the individual contributor. I think that is a fair assessment. I believe that probably a lot of
2: folks do think that the more they hold on to the knowledge that they have, the more valuable they will become to the company and therefore are less likely to, be, you know, eliminated in a, in a reduction in force or whatever the case may be, right? At the same time, the I believe the more that you hold on to that information, the more that you tie yourself to whatever it is that you're doing right at that moment rather than enabling others to do what you're doing and then potentially freeing you up to go on and do other things, right? There's a saying, and I don't know who to attribute the saying to, but the saying is that the best way to get promoted is to make yourself replaceable because if, if, if somebody else can step in and take your role, if you have empowered other people to step in and take your role, then you can be freed up to say, I want to go on and tackle something else. I want to tackle something larger, more strategic, something different, something new, whatever it is that, you know, your employer um, wants or what you want out of your career.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. And uh, I think it probably gives us a little bit of fear, The something new, you know, there's the thing, you know, and the thing you think you might want to do, but you don't know everything about, and a little bit of loss aversion plagues us. Uh, Absolutely. Cue cue the discussion about uh, people manager versus uh, individual contributor. Yeah, absolutely. Because you enjoyed this education and sharing knowledge with others so much, is that how you got into blogging? Indirectly, I would say yes. I think it, I think it is why I got into
2: blogging, even if I didn't recognize it, that's why I got into blogging when I first did it. I first started writing on my site in 2005. Actually for several months, it was, it was an internal site. Like I was I was running my own consultancy uh, at the time. And I had my own infrastructure on premises in my house. And I was using virtualization, of course, uh, you know, on a pair of like reused compact servers to show you how old they are, right? It was a still branded compact at the time. And I had a, an internal system that I was running WordPress on and then I was doing internal, internal blogging on, right? And it started out, or at least I was telling myself, it started out as a way for me to write down things that I had figured out so that in case I needed to find them later, I could come back to it and find it later, right? Absolutely. And that's fine, and it still serves that purpose. I still find myself going back to my own site now, sixteen years later, and saying, Now, how was it I did that thing again? Oh yeah, I wrote about this. Hold on. Let me look that up real quick, right? So it still does serve that purpose, but in looking back on it now, I think what what drove me to make the site public was the fact that I wanted to share that information with others as well, not just for myself. Yes, it serves a purpose for me in helping me remember things that i figured out or even over time it's it's i don't find the right way to describe over time knowledge it kind of it it compacts down and it becomes like this bedrock and it's that foundation of knowledge that has become compacted over time with other things coming in on it and other things coming out that allows you to sort of reach these these new levels of expertise in a particular area right you have to build that foundation first and so It serves a very valuable purpose in 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 helping to create that bedrock, that foundation, by taking that knowledge and then laying it on another layer of what I've already learned. Uh, But it also is serving that purpose of making that information available to others. And I can't I can't tell you, Nick, how many times I've gotten an email from somebody who they said I was stuck. I had no idea what I was going to do. I was up all night. And then at 3 a.m., I found your blog post and it solved my problem. And it's, it's that kind of email that just gives you goosebumps, you know, and you're like, that made it all worthwhile as I helped, you know, her or him solve their problem in, in a, in a time of need. That's
1: awesome. And that's very similar to the student who says, you know, Scott, your explanation of subnet mass through binary was the only way I've ever understood it from anyone I've ever heard it from. And I really appreciate it. Very similar to. The feedback from people in quote the technical classroom that is true that is true I have not made that connection until now but you're absolutely right that's that's what I equated to so yeah that's that's great now how often did you blog in the beginning and what kind of cadence do you keep to now So, some people go nuts with it some people you know it's once a month once a week what's your what's your cadence
2: yeah that's a good question
1: early on I was a blogging machine I would
2: do 8 10 12 posts in a month um, it was not uncommon now this was at the at the early days of uh, VMware taking off right so this was vi3 days and then moving into vSphere 4 so 2006 2007 2008 2009 that kind of thing and I uh, there was there was just so much to write about. There were a lot of a lot of other bloggers, a lot of the people who are very, very well known in VMware centric communities. You got their start in those early times as well. People like Duncan Epping and Frank Deniman, who are now, you know, just I don't even know how to describe them, you know, rock stars, if you will. I know some people have an aversion to that term, so sorry. But extremely well known individuals who have been very, very successful. And there yeah, was just so certainly much to write cut about. their teeth.
1: Let's just say it that way. Oh Yeah,
2: absolutely. For sure. For sure. Absolutely. And there was just so much to write about that. You know, you, you could, you could, you could easily publish,
1: you know, every day if you, if you
2: wanted to, uh, if you had the time. So I, I wrote a lot, um, but over the years it, it slowed down and uh, you know, now I'll do anywhere between four and six a month. Something like that just depends. I think, think august was a slow month for me and maybe september is a slow month but october is shaping up to be pretty good so far so i think i'm at four or five for october you know so it it it's 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 hard to say i know some folks will say that oh you have to have you have to have a cadence you have to publish you know at the same time on the same day every week so that people know to find your content they know to go look for it that kind of thing and i've also had people say Oh, you need to be more laser focused. You need to talk about just one thing. Like you need to focus on this one subject area or this one subject matter. And honestly, you know, I don't know if it's just longevity or if it's something else, but I I get plenty of traffic. I don't try to monetize it, but I get plenty of traffic. I get plenty of visibility. I got great page rank and I don't do any of that stuff. So if you're out there thinking about blogging, like don't get so hung up on the, oh, you have to do it this way. Just just go
1: ahead and do it. If you enjoy it, just go ahead and do it. And, and it'll, all the rest of it, it'll all work itself out. I feel like if you start writing and you enjoy it, you'll never run out of ideas. Like you're going to keep getting ideas as you continue to write. That's my thinking. I, I like your advice on, for people who maybe have thought about it, but haven't started blogging, What if I'm someone who doesn't feel like I'm a great writer, but I'd like to do something like that to stand out? That's a question that's been asked and discussed a lot over the years.
2: And I am of the camp that if you are blogging because you want to get more visibility because it's going to lead to a better job, I'm not convinced that's the right reason to do it. And that's a bit controversial with some folks. Right? Sure. Again, again, there are those people who will say that oh, you know, you you should go blog and you should do it and you should do it this way, of course, right? You know, follow all the SEO rules and publish every day at this time and da 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 da. Um, and you know, before you know it, you'll have ten thousand followers or whatever you know the thing
1: is, right? And don't forget clickbait article titles. Yes, five things top... you must do every day on <laughs> exactly. LinkedIn. Right.
2: Yes, yes, top six things you should do to your blog. That's Scott's next title, by the way. Right. I, I might, and, but and and uh, I think. I take a bit of a contrarian position here than than some folks in the industry, because I believe that you should write or blog because the act of creating content, whether it is video content, whether it is audio content, like what we're doing right here on the podcast, whether it's written form content, whether it is an example, a set of sample code files that you publish in a repository on GitHub, right? All of these forms of content become... Mechanisms and vehicles for conveying information to others to enable and empower them. And if your goal is to enable and empower others, then absolutely you should get in and you should do it, um, especially if you enjoy it. If you don't enjoy it, stick with it for a little while. But I don't believe, and again, this is just my personal take on it, I don't believe you should get into this strictly for financial reasons. Because I think what's going to happen is you're going to end up burning out. And your blog will end up being or your, your your YouTube channel or whatever the case is will end up being a flash in the pan rather than something that has staying power because it's coming from a place of deep conviction and deep commitment within your your character, saying, I have a desire to share this information with others because I believe it will be useful. Or in some cases people have a desire to share this content because they believe it will be entertaining. And that's fine too. I'm not a kind of, you know, I'm not a TikTok person, right? But that's okay. You know, lots of people are, and that's fine. No judgment here. Right. But I think that whatever sort of content you are creating, whether you are somebody who's live streaming or whatever the case may be, you you should do it because it comes from a desire, you know, a a passion inside yourself, not because, hey, I want to get to a hundred thousand followers because then I want to get free stuff because they'll send it to me for me to review it and da da da. What I mean, to me, that's just the wrong motivation. And, and I've, I've said as much in the past, you know, when, when the topic comes up and people ask, you know, Hey, I'm going to start a blog because you know, my buddy over here started a blog and, and he got promoted. And so I want to get promoted too. And I'm, yeah. yeah. I don't know how well it's going to work out for you.
1: It actually sounds to me like you're saying you need to come at it with the same heart of someone who is seeking to do that principal level work, who wants to contribute the knowledge and share it with others to build them up to, if we make that connection.
2: That's a fair connection. That's a fair connection. It, it is true that as, you know, a senior level team member, you know, again, we talked about this earlier, how you are expected mm-hmm. to mentor and you are expected to guide and lead you know, junior members of the team. And all of those things, all of those skills are things that you will develop uh, if you
1: are sharing content for the purposes of empowering and enabling others. I have not heard someone take that stance, Scott, about blogging. That's a That's a very interesting point. I appreciate you sharing that on the on the show. Now, speaking of the the getting incentivized or wanting to get to a certain number of likes or getting paid, you were actually paid to write some articles for Tech Target, I think, for a little while. When you get paid to do something you enjoy for no pay, does how does that affect the motivation and the level of output for the work itself?
2: I think the the, the big challenge for me at that time and and it wasn't long, it was only a couple of years, I think, that I was creating some articles for Tech Target and and that was when um, Scott D. Lowe and I kept running into each other because he was also writing for Tech Republic and I was writing for Tech Target. And that just made things even worse than the fact that there were two people named Scott Lowe in the technology industry, which totally blew people's minds. In any case, the biggest thing that I struggled with during that time period was just knowing that I had to write something. I'm sorry, I'm jumping around a little bit, but no for, for me, blogging is it, it's a passion. It's it's me getting to share. The enjoyment that I get out of figuring something out, unraveling the challenge, solving the problem, you know, finding a new way of doing something, applying a new technology to an old problem, combining technologies, whatever the case may be. It's a way for me to share that. And I believe and it has proven true that this information is up being useful to other folks, that they end up finding value in it in a variety of ways, often in ways that I don't anticipate. But when you're writing for pay, it's like, okay, you need to write something. And you're like, well, I'm not inspired to write anything. It doesn't matter. You have to write something like, you know, you have a deadline next week and they want an article and you have to write it. And that's just how it is. Right. And that was the thing that I personally found the most challenging out of that process. Once if I had an idea of something that I wanted to talk about, then the fact that I was writing it for pay was irrelevant. I had an idea. I had something I could talk about. I had a a soapbox that I could stand on, a position I could rant about whatever the case may be, I could I could then go and just run with it. But if I'm sitting there two days before my deadline, I'm like, I got nothing, right? At least nothing that would be suitable there. I mean, like, you know, the kind of stuff that I write on my site where I'm taking step one, type in this command, step two, type in that command doesn't necessarily translate as well to those types of sites, right? Certainly. So, you know, that was that was it for me. But, but I enjoyed the opportunity to do it. I'm glad that I did it. Uh, it was just that process of sort of, it almost the, the writing almost becomes like the job, right? And then and then you're like, oh, I gotta write another article, you know. And you're not inspired or motivated to do so because it's not coming from that that place of of commitment and and you know passion within you. It's like, oh, I just I just have to do this thing,
1: right? Well, at least you got to pick the topic. It sounds like, and they didn't say, hey, Scott, we need an article on storage or something sometimes
2: like that. sometimes they they would they would tell me what they wanted me to write about occasionally. Um, fortunately again, if I had, if I had stayed in it longer, I'm sure I would have run into more situations where I'm like, I, I, I'm sorry, I'm not going to write about that. (laughs) Just, I'm just not right. (laughs) You want me to write about, you know, whatever windows over here or something like that. Right. I'm like, sorry, I'm not going to do it. But I didn't, I didn't run into that problem. The, the editors that I worked with were outstanding individuals. Um, all of them, Uh, I have no complaints at all about any of the editors that I worked with or any of the organizations that I worked with. So uh, I, again, I,
1: you know, very lucky in that regard. We've talked to a couple of folks on the show that their hobby became their job and they had to sort of find some sort of, some other creative outlet to keep the the passion, excitement going in their life so that it wasn't, as you said, oh man, I have to write another article. I guess I'll go do it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And again,
2: You know, I can't stress just how how fortunate I've been to have great managers who recognize that for me, I can add value in ways that may not seem at first glance. Like If I'm off messing around with this thing over here, at first glance, you may look at that and say, well, what is... You know, what, what are you doing? Like, why, why are you doing this? But then after I mess with that thing a little bit, and then I come back with some insight that I can share with the rest of the team and everybody's like, Oh, we can do that with this or this or this. And then, then suddenly the light bulb goes off and they're like, okay, all right. I see, I see how this works, you know? So I've been, again, very fortunate to have a set of managers over the course of my career that recognize that and gave me the ability to do that. But that's part, you know, like I'm, I'm able to channel my creative juices that way so that it doesn't become the job, right? And I can still learn new things in the, in the roles that I'm in and, and still share information with folks and still, you know, get revitalized when I hit that new technology and be like, okay, I got
1: to figure out how this works. And I think what you're speaking to at a greater level here, Scott, is the intent with which you do the things, because as you said earlier, I'm not doing this to beat my chest necessarily and say, Hey, I'm great it's more of a place of humility. I think this will help someone. That's a large part of the reason I'm doing it. There is, of course, a side benefit to me as well, you know, as a gaining experience, gaining knowledge.
2: Oh uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and I know it sounds self-serving to say that, to say that, you know, you're not trying to be like all that. Um, right. But truly and honestly, like I I share this because I do believe that it will help somebody. And sometimes it's, it's sometimes it's years later, like in, in 2011, 2011, 2012, I started working with this technology called open V switch Right. And at the time it, it was only being used in a couple of relatively not super well-known projects or or things, but I started digging into it and, and sharing this information. And I, even like, you know, five years later, Somebody, somebody writes me and says, man, this, this stuff that you wrote on switch was super useful. I really, really found it helpful when I was trying to figure out this problem that I was doing with whatever, you know, technology it was that had, you know, started using OpenBSwitch inside it. So sometimes the payoff is, is like really delayed, but it's still there. And I've seen it even going back farther than that, like 2000, let's see, 2007, 2008. I don't know why, but I got on a kick of integrating Unix and Linux systems with Active Directory, Right. Um, actually, I do know why. It was because I was working with a customer to do that for them, and that just kind of spun me off in a tailspin. And so I ended up like writing I don't know half a dozen different articles on how to integrate, you know, Linux with Active Directory, how to integrate Solaris with Active Directory, you know, uh, how to integrate OpenBSD with Active Directory. All these things that, these things. and I mean, a decade later, somebody says, "Hey, are you going to update your Solaris article?" And I'm like, "No, like Sun doesn't even exist anymore." Like, you know, that company is gone. They got bought by Oracle. It's it's like long gone. No, I'm not going to op- update it. Oh, man. So the payoff happens. Um, and you just uh, don't know you, when. You just don't know when. Right. Yeah. But yeah. you're right. Getting back to your earlier point. It is about the intent with which you do it. And that, and that comes back to that statement I made about why you blog or why you create content. Right. It's about the intent. Are you doing it because you want to get a promotion? I don't know if that's going to work out. Right. Maybe it will. And, and, I, and maybe that's fine for you. For me, I believe it has to come from a place of I want to genuinely improve the experience, the the whatever for others, right? I want to make, I, I'm, I'm building a, a path, paving a road to make it easier for those to
1: follow. I like that. That's great. Now, at what point did you transition from writing blogs to writing books? Because that's a little bit of a jump, right? Maybe not if you're blogging 12 times a month. Uh, It's still a jump.
2: (laughs) So yeah that that um, there's a there's there's a great backstory there that I'll be happy to share with you if you're interested. But the 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 first book happened in 2009, I believe, and that was it was just happenstance. Uh, A a colleague of mine, a a very good friend, uh, I would say, uh, he got offered to write a book. He couldn't. He asked me, "Do you want to do it?" And I was like, "Sure." And before you know it, you know, there's Mastering VMware vSphere 4, uh, which was a, a, by all accounts, a runaway success. And then we went on to do Mastering vSphere 5 and a bevy of Got a copy of that one. Yeah, right. I remember reading it. A whole bevy of other things. I was fortunate enough to work with uh, Forbes Guthrie and uh, Maish Seidel Kiesing on uh, VMware vSphere design. That's another one that I had somebody ask me, hey, you're going to do a third edition? I'm like, "Eh, no, probably not it is a very different thing than writing blog posts, a very different thing. And it was very, very intensive. One of the things that, that I did just as a, we're all more than just our job, right? We are, of course we are fathers or brothers or sons or, you know, daughters and sisters and wives. And, you know, all these, we're all these other things, right? Uh, We are friends. We are, you know, whatever. Um, And one of the things that, I did when I got the opportunity to write the book, I knew the, the timeline was very aggressive and I sat down with my family and I was like, look, this opportunity has been presented, uh, for me to write this book. Um, and it's going to mean that I'm going to be, you know, like working a lot in the nights and the evenings. Right. And I had young kids at the time when, uh, when this happened, um, they're all grown and moved out now, but they were younger then and they were still at home and i i felt like it was important to make sure that the that everybody in the family bought off on this and said yeah we understand what this means you know we know what this means for you as our dad that you know you're going to be sitting at the computer a lot you know more so than you already do right because i'm going to be like pounding out these words and uh and that means they need to step up and they need to help out around the house and they need to help uh my wife their mom you know uh take care of things because i'm not going to be able to do as much and uh you know, everybody was super supportive, which I'm very thankful for. Which is really the only reason why my wife and I decided that we sh- that I should go ahead and do that. But it's it's a ton of work. I, I'm not going to mince words. It's a ton of work to write a book, and very different than writing a uh, you know a blog post or
1: you know producing a video or anything like that. So. And what makes you want to say yes when someone says, "Hey, Scott, you want to write this book?" Yeah, like what what inside produces the yes? That is what I want to do. Well for me, I
2: had wanted to write a book for years, years and years okay I mean I, I don't I don't even know why I, I'm an avid reader. I love to read most of what I read is fiction. Uh, I do read some business stuff you know I don't read a lot of technology books even though that's what I write, which is kind of ironic um, but it's just not me right um, and so I'd wanted to write a book. I, I, there's just something about saying I wanted to write a book that I was a published author that I just, that was, I wanted that. And I had worked and worked and worked and tried to make it happen and it didn't happen. And uh, it's kind of funny because I finally stepped back and, and said, okay, I'm going to stop like chasing this thing. And when the time is right, it'll, it'll happen. And it was about six months later that it happened. Um, oh, it's wow. really kind of weird, right? You could, you know, depending on what you believe or how you feel, um, you know, you could, Ascribe that to various different things, but it was it was it, it just happened that I finally stopped chasing it, and then about six months later, it just fell in my lap, and I was like, "Yeah, of course I'm going to." Like I've I've wanted this for years. Of course I will. So, and it was a it was a long haul. I mean, we got the book written in just just over four months, four and a half five months. It was late January, and then we published in in June, or, or wait, wait we did publish in June. We finished writing and editing in June, and then it went to production. And then the first copies rolled out at VMworld 2009 in San Francisco.
1: So that was August. Yeah. And that's another example of widening that impact and content creation for the broader community. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of prestige there being a published author of a book. That's a, that's a big deal. And a lot of people, it seems like some of the more successful folks in the tech industry have done that. Not all of them. Right. Several folks that I've heard of have pursued writing a book. I think as a writer, and I call
2: myself a writer because of, you know, having spent so many years writing stuff on the site, I, I believe that writing is powerful in in many, many ways. I think that it it's so, cr- so crucial to what we do. You know, we are, are often referred to as information workers or knowledge workers, right? Yes, sir. And how do we convey that knowledge? You know, Sometimes we convey that knowledge in video content. Sometimes we can ta- convey it in audio content. But so much of our everything about humanity is in written form. I mean, it is so incredibly central to all that we are as a people that spending the time to do that and, ma- and make yourself better at it pays off in so many other ways. Right. You know, you can write a more effective memo to your boss explaining why it is that you need to do this upgrade that you're proposing, right? You can, yep. you can more effectively structure that content and lay out your argument because you've practiced writing. You can understand, you know, seeing someone else's arguments, maybe where there are flaws in those arguments and, and saying, well, okay, I see your point here, but the reality is that it's this over here. And, you know, so I'm not going to buy this product from you, Mr. Vendor, Right because you're, you're, you're working from a flat a position of a you know, flawed assumption. But all of that comes out of understanding our language and using our language and putting our language to work for you, whatever that language is. You and know, I obviously conversing English, but the same applies to people writing in other languages, whether you're writing in you know, French or German or whatever, Swahili, right? Becoming familiar with and fluent with that tool just gives you power to be more effective as, as as an individual, as a communicator, um, and as a leader. And again, I think all of these things are so intermeshed in that, in that career ladder of, of being able to make yourself more effective at broadening your sphere of influence. And as your sphere of influence broadens, then the company recognizes, Hey, this, this, you know, this lady here, she's doing great work. We need to promote her right? We need to make her a leader, not a manager necessarily, although that's fine too, but a leader within our team. But all that being said, I think writing is, is useful for all folks, but be careful stepping in to write a book. Like it's a, it's a whole nother creature, right? I will share one relatively amusing anecdote and then we can move on. And that is, you know, somebody might say, well, Scott, okay, so you're telling us to be careful writing a book, but you've written eight of them. So what is going on here? Right? Like, and, and it's, it's, a it's, I'm going to use this analogy and I'm going to give, uh, the credit for the, for the, the story was, uh, uh, two people that I was talking to, they're now analysts at various firms. Right. Um, and, uh, and we were at a conference and I was talking to this gentleman and we're walking through the show hall at the conference. It was actually a VM world. We're walking through the show hall. Right. And we're talking, you know, blah, blah, whatever. And we come upon, um, this lady who had written a book. And she was really, really well-known. Um, and we all just started talking so on and so forth. And, and the gentleman asked, he's like, well, you know, are you writing another book? And she's like, yes. And he says, well, why are you doing that? You know, like you, you've talked so much about a book being so hard. Why are you doing that? And, and she said now, so, you know, I'm not borrowing this analogy because I don't have any direct experience in this, but this is what she says. She said, it's like giving birth to a baby. It's really, really hard. And it's really, really painful. But after it's done, And you look back on it, you don't remember that. And so then somebody says, you want to do it again? And you're like, sure. And then you get into it. And then you realize you're like, this is why I didn't want to do it again. But then after you go through all that and it's done, then you forget about it again. Right. And again, I I obviously have not given birth to a child. So I'm not speaking for personal experience, but she had, and she used that analogy. So that's why I say, you know, it's, it's, it's hard. It's a lot of work after you do it. It'll, you'll look back on it. And as humans, we have a tendency of doing this. We'll look back on it and we'll sort of paint it with rose-colored, you know, glasses, right? And it's, oh, that wasn't so bad, you know. I did staying up till
1: 3 a.m. writing, that wasn't so bad. You know, that kind of thing. It's the growth that brings the joy, right? Sure. Sure. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. So I imagine that there is a ton when you agree to write a book because, you know, you agreeing to write a book on mastering vSphere. It doesn't mean you know every setting in vSphere when you start it. Right. You got to figure some of that stuff out as you go.
2: Yes, absolutely. And, and just like writing a blog post or, or teaching something, I use blog posts because that's what I do a lot, but teaching something to someone else, right? Whatever form that looks like sharing that content, it solidifies your own understanding of the topic because you're going to go and be like, well, wait a minute, how do I understand this? How, how do I explain this? And if you find that you're having a hard time explaining, it, it's probably because you don't understand it well enough. Right. So you're absolutely right. You know, I take on this, this task of writing this book about mastering vSphere. I'm familiar with vSphere. I, you know, I know it well. But at the time, we were writing against beta code because the product hadn't even been released yet. Right? So we were doing screenshots against beta code. We were writing against beta code. And then when a new build was released, we had to go back and edit the content again because names might have changed. Screens might have changed. You know, features might have been renamed, oh, yeah. whatever the case may be. But you're Buttons right.
1: Buttons move.
2: There's, Yes, buttons move right. Exactly, dialogue boxes get redone. Exactly, but there's so much learning that happens in that process because you are forced to embrace uh, all all of the different aspects of whatever it is you're writing about, and you have to poke into every you know every little corner, every little niche, and and say what does this do, and why does it do that, and how do I configure it, and what does it play with. So yeah, there's a lot of learning that happens, and I would say that the process of writing, mastering b four, and then again with five. I learned tons, even though I had been working with uh, the VMware hypervisor for years.
1: Yeah. And that was one of those books like you need to get this to study for a VMware certified professional. Take the class and you'll you'll pass. And it worked, you know, yeah. even though it was never
2: there. it was never intended as a certification guide. Like it just it, we never wrote it that way. But that, I heard you are not the first person I've heard say that, you know, the book was in, incredibly helpful in, in passing the certification.
0: Oh, yeah,
1: superbly, helpful, superbly.
0: And let's break there for part one. Uh, Nick, uh, I too read Mastering vSphere as part of my uh, certification journey for uh, VMware. So it's a great book. Yeah. (laughs) And a lot of it is evergreen too. You know, some of the technology changes, but the underlying stuff, you know, that you you get a lot of it. I guess that's all part of the mastery of the underlying subject and not just um, the UI elements, right? For sure. I also really found it interesting that um, Scott was talking about impact as someone who helps others to develop, but also wanting to stay close to technology as an individual contributor um, versus managing people. That was pretty fascinating. And then teaching and blogging slash writing, you know, those struck me as two facets of the same process, right? Kind of the helping other people develop and and even that kind of fed into like the next thing that I noticed, which was, you know, the reasons to blog. I think you asked about that and right in general, right? That just, I think, uh, you know, we're jumping ahead in time. It kind of complements the approach that we're going to hear from the return interview with Josh Duffney. I just want to tease that. It's not the next episode and it's not even the next interview, but we have it in the can and it just really reminded me of what Josh said. Like, you know, that writing process as a process that helps you to fully understand a topic, you know, and I think we said before, like, it's just another aspect of teaching. You know, you, you teach a topic and then you find out like how much you really know about that topic.
1: Well, Don Jones said that teaching
0: is just repackaging
1: information and this also reminds me of what Chris Wall said about writing being one of the most valuable skills that you can hone as a technologist. You yeah. know, it's just aligning with so many different people's advice. And I will say the the impact of helping other people develop, in my mind, he took a humble approach to sharing. It's not really a, hey, look at me. It's more of a, I figured this out and I think it would be helpful for other people to understand it too and the way i can provide value to them is by sharing what i learned that that's how i see his approach and i really like that
0: yeah i like that too and i would say to the listeners like it doesn't matter like what level you're at like it's starting at anything like yeah. even like that point that you're trying to explain to your future self like i figured this thing out i want to explain it to somebody and that somebody just might be myself you know, six months from now when I've forgotten this topic. Another thing that I found interesting was his view of that principal title. You know, he's been in several different organizations, um, VMware at two different times, you know, two different times where the, the philosophy might have actually changed. So it's interesting to hear about his take on that title, you know, and the, the path and track towards it, through it even, Um, in different organizations and how it needs to, you know, match the growth point of the organization and what it means and what that person does.
1: Yeah. And I thought it was interesting when he talked about why he likes the individual contributor path the best. Mm. It, It seemed like he didn't completely rule out management as an option in the future. Kind of a, I think I probably could do it. It's not really a focus for me right now. But I don't I didn't hear him rule it out completely. Definitely not. And that that seems to jive with other people at the principal role that I've talked to, you know, aside from the show, they they may not want to be a people leader, but it doesn't mean that they have completely said forget it, I'm never going to do that.
0: Right. Well, I guess when you're aligned with people at that level, you know, um director plus and you are talking to them and seeing what they do day to day that kind of seeps into maybe what it is that you do. That's a little bit speculative. Maybe I could have added something to the conversation in retrospect.
1: I'm sure you could have. Absolutely. Power outages are a bummer, man.
0: We'll bring that up to the next person that has a high level, like, you know, staff engineer plus title and see what they have to say about that.
1: Yeah. How about those ride-alongs that he did as a technical trainer with the customers that that company was serving? I love the fact that they learned the business lingo and jargon of the company so that they could better communicate with the people they were training.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, extra time and effort, but
1: nice touch and, I think, more impactful.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're speaking to the people in a way that they can understand, which just makes sense. Yep well um anything else before we get out of here if we tease part
1: two a little bit we'll see a little bit more about what scott's up to now and how he has maybe had to change the way he manages his time and doing all these highly impactful things and maybe how you should too if that's the direction you're headed
0: yeah i'm excited to hear more about kong
1: just a reminder We want people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Don't forget to rate the show. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter at Nerd Journey.
0: All right. Farewell listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm John White at VJourneyman. For Nick Cordy at NetworkNerd underscore, signing off. Adios.